Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counseled you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right, we're gonna spend some time considering this text together. I'm not sure if you've seen the film Encanto. Uh, My family has on numerous occasions. Uh, We sing along to, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, the family madrigal, you know, all the the hits uh, from, from that movie. If you're like, what are you talking about? You're like speaking a different language. Um, yes, technically it's, you know, whatever. The central plot of Encanto is this, if you're totally unfamiliar. There's this family, the Madrigals, and each of them possess a magical gift with which they serve and help each other. They exist in this lovely little, little town and kingdom together. And everyone in the family has a gift except for Mirabelle, who's a 15-year-old girl. And I won't spoil the plot or ending, it's worth going to watch, we liked it. But Mirabelle, essentially what happens is she spends the movie trying to solve a problem her family has while also wrestling with this sort of existential crisis that everyone has a gift but her. Now in the end, of course, as you may guess, she does have an important gift. You know, she has to find it, she has to see it for herself, but, she's, but all the way along she thinks she doesn't have much to offer to this, this very magical family. And in this way, Mirabelle is actually the opposite of the church at Laodicea. Mirabelle in Encanto, she thinks she's giftless. She thinks, I have nothing to offer. What am I doing here? I'm out of place in this magical family. But of course she was wrong. And oppositely, the church at Laodicea thinks they are wonderfully gifted. Aren't we a gift to God's church? Uh, We are spiritually rich. We are powerful. We're satisfied. We're self-sufficient. Laodicea thinks of itself as we are the ones with the magical gift in a family of ungifted others. But they too are wrong. They have not understood themselves correctly. And this last church in the series of seven that we've looked at, they received the sharpest rebuke from Jesus. And yet, if you were listening carefully, you may have noticed no obvious sin here. There's no like embezzlement scheme like, wow, you've robbed a lot of little old ladies of all their money. No, that's not what's going on here. What's going on is a church deceived about itself, a church that can't see its own face. 
And Jesus writes to them, he calls to them, he speaks to them so they will awaken to their condition and change. But the question really for them and for us is this, will we see ourselves rightly? And will we awaken to our true condition? So I want to take our text in three parts. We'll talk about this lukewarm church, this neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot idea first. Then we'll talk about the counsel of Jesus. Jesus says, I have counsel for you. And then third, there's a visit of Jesus. The letter to the church at Laodicea is addressed from, if you look at verse 14, from the, the amen, the amen, depending on, on how you say it, both, both are fine. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. <clears throat> And if you recall, when we did chapter 1, these again are all descriptors pulled forward from chapter 1. And the word amen, in case you're wondering, like why do we say that at the end of prayers? What it means is, so be it. So be it. So when you say, when someone says a prayer and at the end they say amen, what they mean is, God, please do this. Please make all of the things I just asked for happen. And when we all pray together, if you think if we pray together, there's a hundred people or whatever. And, and, if the, and if you say at the, amen at the end of someone else's prayer, you are saying, I agree. What, what that person up front, what they just prayed for, I am in favor of that. God, please do that as well. That's what amen means. But notice, Jesus isn't saying amen to something else. It says, he is the amen, like the capital A, capital A, amen. He is the means then by which God's will is done. He's also called the faithful and true witness. Everything he says is right and good and true. If you picture sort of a cosmic courtroom and Jesus is in uh, the witness box, I don't even know if they have witness boxes anymore, but if, if he's giving testimony, giving witness to something, then everything that comes out of his mouth is, is, is reliable. He's not going to lie. He's not going to mislead. He's utterly dependable. If he tells you something about yourself, if he tells you something about the world, you had better believe him. And third, he says, he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, I don't think this means that he's part of creation. Rather, this more likely refers to the resurrection, the beginning of the recreation of the entire world. As God begins his work, began his work of making all things new, it began with Jesus. He was the first, first one resurrected, the first thing. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. Like, there's a giant harvest and the combine is, you know, has just chopped down the first row of you know, corn or soybeans or whatever. He, he is, he's the beginning of that. So who is this letter from? It's the one who has spiritual power, the one who's telling us the truth, and the one who is the beginning of making all things new. Now, why does that matter? Why does the address matter? Well, it matters because Jesus is going to tell Laodicea some unpleasant things about itself. And they have to trust him. They have to believe him when, when he tells them. It's not easy to hear bad news about yourself. And Jesus lays a foundation right here in the address upon which he can tell them everything else. But it's not just bad news, of course. There's hope of resurrection power. The bad news won't be the last true thing about Laodicea. Jesus says, I'm also coming with resurrection power, a new creation, a new way of being. That's also going to be possible. That's who the letter is from. Now, before we move to what Jesus tells them about themselves, this whole lukewarm thing, I want you to understand a few things about the, the, the physical city of Laodicea, because I think, I think this is going to help you. Um, there's a lot of parallels between the physical city and the, the spiritual city, the church. Um, the ancient city of Laodicea, if, you're, if you can picture it, um, modern western Turkey, a little bit inland, um, you know, uh, from the Mediterranean, or, from, or from, not from the Mediterranean, from the sea. But anyways, it, it was located on this river, Lycus, and, and the water in Lycus uh, is not really drinkable. And so from, from early times, and especially from Roman times, they piped water in from other places. 
And the two closest places where the Laodicea could get water from were very different. The first was a nearby city called Herapolis, and Herapolis was known for its hot springs. And, you know, hot springs, throughout human history, they've been revered for their medicinal and therapeutic effects. Like, people sat in them, you know, forever. So they, they had hot water in Herapolis, naturally occurring hot water. But oppositely, the other city that was kind of like the other way, also nearby, was the city of Colossae. That's where we got our letter to the Colossians. They didn't have hot water, no hot springs in Colossae, but they did have very good cold springs. It delivered out of the ground, naturally occurring, uh, cold, refreshing water. And again, historically, cold water at least was thought by the ancients to be you know, healthier, better for the body, you know, had, had more nutrients. But if you're piping in water... <clears throat> From, from miles and miles away, no matter if it begins very hot in Herapolis, if it begins very cold in Colossae, by the time, you know, you get through the pipes or the aqueducts to Laodicea, it will be what? It'll be, it'll be lukewarm. It'll be, it'll be room temperature. It'll have lost either its warmth or its coolness. And in addition, though, the Romans, of course, were master builders. Their pipes weren't perfect. The water arriving in Laodicea from other places was often dirty, imperfect, couldn't always drink it. And so I think understanding a little bit of the geography, the history of Laodicea, these words of Jesus make a lot more sense. We're like, why is he going on about hot and cold and lukewarm? Uh, it's because of, of where they lived. And he's telling the Laodiceans, you've become exactly like your water. You're not cold and refreshing like Colossae. You're not warm and medicinal and helpful like Herapolis. You're lukewarm. You're somewhere in the middle and it's terrible. And Jesus says, when I, when I take a sip of such lukewarm faith, he spits it out. He wants nothing to do with it. The Laodiceans, Jesus says, they're, they're nauseatingly tepid in their faith. And he says, if you continue, if you live in this lukewarm world, if you continue on this path, then you're going to have no part. He said, Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. Now, then, then that's an important question. What, what does it mean to have a lukewarm faith? We know what lukewarm, what, what tepid, tepid water is. What does a lukewarm faith mean? Well, I'm not sure where all of you have grown up or if, you've even, if you come from a, a church, but um, in, in many parts of evangelicalism, there was an implicit and sometimes even explicit message um, that went something like this. If you don't read your Bible and pray every day, then you're a lukewarm Christian. Or if you don't share your faith regularly, if you don't do evangelism a lot, you're a lukewarm Christian. Or depending on your particular tradition, maybe it was if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't give a lot of money, if you don't go on mission trips, if you don't something, then you must be lukewarm. That was often the, mes the message that was communicated. Now here's the problem with that message. And look, first of all, I'm not opposed. <laughs> and as a church, we're not opposed to reading the Bible, praying, sharing your faith. We like that stuff. But the problem with all those definitions I just mentioned is that they all describe an external action and they don't describe the heart. Hypothetically, a person could read their Bible and share their faith and do all sorts of very churchy things and have a very hard heart and be very angry at Jesus. A person could do many different kinds of external Christian behaviors, but only as a way to get something else that they really want. And so I think this is very important. I think we must understand lukewarmness not as an external action or lack thereof, but rather as an attitude of the heart. The lukewarm Christian, the lukewarm church, believes something in its heart. And it eventually comes out as action, but it begins in the heart. And what do they believe? Look at verse 17. For you, that's Laodicea, for you, Laodicea, say, they're saying this in their hearts, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
Okay, look, you want, what's, a, what's a lukewarm Christian look like? It's one who whispers to themselves, I am all I need. Church, Christianity, Jesus, whatever, helpful things, ultimately extra things. Not essential. That's, that's at, at the very bottom, when you dig all the way down, that's the fundamental attitude of a lukewarm person. And here's one of the, one of the issues we have. Um, Canada believes this as well. <laughs> I, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. We hear this message everywhere. If you look for it, it's all over the place. For some of you older people, many of you and your peers have prospered quite a bit financially. If you grew up in the 60s, the 70s, maybe the early 80s, You've lived through now the largest financial boom in history. Your houses, your investments, you know, in general have turned out for the most part spectacularly well. You may not feel like I'm so loaded, so, so wealthy, but it, it may feel in some ways that I, I have prospered. I need nothing. For some of you younger people, you're like, well, I haven't done as well financially. I'm struggling, whatever. The cultural tides still reinforce this message just in different ways. You can be anything you want to be. You need nothing from anyone else. No one else can tell you anything about yourself. You may select any identity, any kind of life you choose. No one may contradict it. If you feel a lack, the answer is inside you, not outside of you. And we, we could do more. We could do these all day. No matter your age, no matter your, your gender, no matter your whatever, the, the message seems to be the same. You are your own and you belong to yourself. Isn't that everything we hear? Build any life you want. You be the judge and jury of your own life. You redeem yourself. You condemn yourself. You construct yourself. The Laodicean attitude strikes me as quite Canadian. Rich and prosperous without very many needs. And in this world of self-construction, some of us leap headlong into that challenge. We're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this race. I'm going to optimize. I'm going to grow. I'm going to keep finding ways to do more, better, and faster. Others in this environment take the opposite approach, like not competing, <laughs> I'm just opting out. I'm either, getting, I'm either opting for entertainment or despair or something else. Uh, but even in those, those fields, there's still a bottomless well of options. In the world of the self, there is only the unending search for more. And it appears from what Jesus says that Laodicea has just run headlong into this world. And it's not a non-Christian problem it's not a problem only for those people who reject religion and in here we're all fine. We're, we're not fine. <laughs> it's a human problem. And Jesus says the problem, the call is coming from inside the church. That Christians believe this message. I'm rich, I'm prosperous, and I have everything I need. And he, Jesus says you go on living with that mindset will lead to Jesus having nothing to do with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you were forced to write a document, let's say this afternoon I made you come over to my office and I made you write a document. I said, I want you to summarize the basics of the Christian faith. Do it Q&A style. Where do you think you'd begin? Would you begin with uh, the creation of the world? That's not a bad place to start. Would you begin with uh, the nature of God? Something else? Well, in 1563, many, many years ago, in a town in Germany... A man named Zachary Ursinus was tasked by this rich prince to do exactly this. He said, write a question and answer document that the church can use to understand faith and everything. Here's how Ursinus began. Listen to it in light of the, the attitude that the Laodiceans have. Ursinus began with this question. What is my only comfort in life and death? And here's how he answered it. I am not my own 
but belong body and soul, life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Ursina starts with an existential question. He asked a question about comfort. It's highly unusual for anything written in that time period. He said, what actually comforts a Christian? What soothes the question that, that really bug us? And he said the answer to that is that you don't belong to yourself. And what he's saying to Laodicea, if Ursinus could talk to Laodicea, he's saying, you have it backwards. You've believed a lie. You've, you've believed precisely the opposite of what you should actually believing, be believing. And if that lie is allowed to continue, if it's allowed to stand, it's going to wreck everything. And I am telling you the exact same thing. To be a Christian is to reject this sort of kingdom of the capital S self and to realize, you no, know you belong to Christ. You don't belong to yourself. And if you look at the second half of verse 17, what the Laodiceans have been uh, ignoring, what they don't, do not realize, he says that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. It's a terrifying description. They think they are prosperous and rich. And he's like, no, you're exactly the opposite. And not physically, I mean, the Laodiceans were quite well off. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But he said, you're to be pitied spiritually. You have the best clothes, but you're, you're spiritually naked. You have all the success in the world, but you're spiritually wretched. And this lesson is taught all over the scriptures that worldly success, worldly wealth, worldly acclaim can easily blind us to our true condition. Physical wealth, physical success can make us believe the same thing is true spiritually. But if you remember, I don't know how many weeks ago what it was now, the, the, the church at Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your poverty, but yet you are rich. He said the exact opposite thing to Smyrna. They were broke physically. They'd been shut out of the economic life of their city, but they were rich spiritually. And this is more correlation than causation. But Jesus says over and over, if you're rich, if you're wealthy, it's going to be hard to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible. With Christ, all things are possible. But it's hard because it tends to be spiritually blinding. When I look around at Canada, when I look around at my neighborhood, my friends, it's no wonder that many people seem to be so far from God. I think because as a country, as a city, we've become extremely rich and self-sufficient. And it, and it feels like even for a few people to understand their spiritual need feels like a miracle. And of course, I pray for us as a church because th we're learning. This is so easy to settle into. But Jesus says, if, you're, if you believe I'm rich, I'm prosperous, and I need nothing, very soon Jesus spits you out. And that's the lukewarm church. So the counsel of Jesus. What does Jesus tell the Laodiceans to do? He tells them three things. He says, buy gold, refined by the fire, that you may become rich. Buy white garments, get white garments so that you'll be clothed. And get salve for your eyes so that you may see. Now, that's kind of a weird set of instructions. If you're like, well, that's, those are weird. Why would he tell them to do these things? But I want to tell you a few other things about Laodicea. It was known for a couple of things in the ancient world besides their whole water situation. First, it was rich. There was a big earthquake in Turkey in 60 AD during the reign of Nero, and Laodicea had extensive damage. And, and Rome, the, the imperial government, comes along and they offer Laodiceans relief money so they can rebuild their city. And the Laodiceans were so rich by this time, so self-sufficient, they're like, we got it. You can keep your money. Try to imagine a Canadian city de declining federal, federal money from, from Ottawa. And like, no, we, we, we can rebuild our city all on our own. We don't need you. They were extremely wealthy. Second, Laodicea was known for its textiles. One of the ways they got so rich was through their textiles. And even to this day, Turkish cotton, Turkish cloth, 
still a very good reputation in our world. The Laodiceans specialized in making garments out of this black, glossy wool. And they made these garments prized all around the Roman world. And third, Laodicea was a center for medicine, and in particular, a center for eye medicine. What they, they produced this thing called Phrygian powder. You, you can Google it this afternoon. Uh, who knows if it actually worked, but it made, it made this salve, this sort of stuff you would put on your eyes. If you had an eye ailment, you'd, you'd get to Laodicea or get your hands on some of this Phrygian powder that they had produced. So this is their reputation in the ancient world. They're rich, they're known for their clothing and their textiles, and they're known for their eye medicines. And this is what Jesus speaks to them in. Do you see, he says, you've got gold, it's just the wrong kind. You've got garments, they're, they're the wrong color. And the eye salve that you, you make in your little factories can't make you sing, see the things that are truly important. You think you're rich, you're actually broke. You think you're beautiful and fashionable. You're embarrassingly naked. You think you can solve all your eye issues, but you can't see anything. Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, it's, it's all wrong. You are not your own. Or more accurately, if you only go on belonging to yourself, you're in deep trouble. You're looking for wealth and for beauty and for help seeing, but you've looked in all the wrong places. To look for the right things in the wrong places is what we sometimes call idolatry. And when I say idol, what I mean is that you have a desire for something, often a good thing, and instead of looking to Christ, instead of looking to God to find it, you find it somewhere else. And when that happens, you end up chasing the wrong kind of gold, the wrong kind of clothes, and the wrong kind of eye ointments, and you end up where you don't intend to be. Because first, that chase never ends. You want to chase gold, like the little, the shiny gold, that's never going to fill you. There's no clothes that you're going to buy tomorrow that will, will satisfy you for the rest of your life. But more importantly, the pursuit of earthly wealth and success can blind you, often does blind people, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> to the spiritual realities of the world. The point of life is to find Christ and be found in him. So the gold you actually need, Christ has it. <laughs> That's what he says. Uh, the, the, the white clothes of purity yeah, and goodness you need, only he has them. The eyes to see reality are given by him. What Jesus promises the Laodiceans and us in turn are these things. Purity, righteousness, a true view of the world. Gold tarnishes, clothes rot, your physical eyes eventually at some point stop working. And in fact, Jesus is asking Laodicea this series of questions. Do you want to chase riches or do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to look beautiful or do you want to feel beautiful on the inside? Do you want your eyes to work or do you want your soul to work? It's a hard choice, hard questions. But we move to part three, the visit of Jesus. Now this has been a hard letter. Uh, difficult words <laughs> have been spoken by Jesus to the somewhat worldly and self-sufficient church. But again, I want to ask this question. I've asked it a few times in this series. To what end does Jesus write? Why does he reprove them? Why does he discipline them? Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You might think that Jesus would be angry at Laodicea. It's like, man, these guys, they've messed up big time. They are way off the track. They've dishonored and maligned the name of Jesus. They are not a good church. We might have expected Jesus to come along and wag his finger at them and get a little grumpy with them. But Jesus says, the reason I'm speaking to you is because I love you. 
So listen to me. If you've lost your way, if you've gotten swallowed up in the ways of the world, you've loved gold and clothes a little too much, how do you think Jesus feels about you? Verse 19 tells us that he loves you. If you can hear his voice this morning, then, then he loves you and he speaks to you so directly and so forthrightly because of his great love for us. And I think verse 20 and verse 21 are some of the most beautiful word pictures we have in all the scriptures. Because Jesus says, what I'm doing is I'm standing at the door of your church and I'm, and I'm knocking on it. And if anyone, anyone, if anyone can hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And in verse 21, if, if you can hear and respond, then you'll be a conqueror and you'll sit with the Father and the Son on the thrones. Why does Jesus speak this way to the wayward Laodicean church? Because he wants to eat with them. He wants to make his home with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to have them as part of his kingdom. Jesus stands outside of cold, hard hearts, and he knocks, and he knocks, and he calls. The writer Alice Gray tells a story, and I want to tell it to you this morning. A young man was riding a bus from a large city to a small town, and he was clearly nervous, kept staring out the window. An elderly woman sitting across the aisle, Alice doesn't identify it uh, as herself, but I sort of think it is. Anyway, she noticed his behavior. She struck up a conversation with him. And within a few moments, the whole story tumbled out. The young man explained, I've been in prison the last two years. I got out this morning and I'm going home. And he told the woman, this older woman, uh, he was raised in a poor but honest family. Crime, uh, the crime he'd committed had brought his family shame and dishonor and heartbreak. And for the two years he'd been incarcerated, he hadn't heard from his family. They were too poor to travel the distance to visit him in prison, and his parents were too uneducated to write back. Three weeks before he was released, he was desperate, and he wrote one more letter to his family, and he told them how sorry he was for disappointing them, and he asked for their forgiveness. And he went on to explain, he's like, I'm about to be released from prison, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the bus to, to the hometown, and the bus route went right down the main street, right by the front yard of the house he grew up in, where his parents still lived. And he's like, look, I understand if you don't forgive me, if you want, you out of, uh, want me out of your life forever. But he's like, I want to make it easy for you. So he's, he asked them to give them a signal they could, he could see from the bus. He said, if you've forgiven me, if you want me back, then tie a white ribbon to the old apple tree in the front yard. And he said, if the signal isn't there, I'll just stay on the bus, I'll leave town, I'll be out of your life forever. And as the bus nears the street, he's more and more anxious. He's like, I can't even look out the window anymore. He's so worried there's going to be no ribbon on the tree. And the woman, the older woman says, hey, why don't we trade seats? I'll look out the window. You can <laughs> you know, bury your head in your hands or whatever. And, and, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what's on the tree. So the bus travels a few more blocks. They switch seats. And she sees the tree. And she touches the young man's shoulder. And as she chokes back tears, she says, look, the whole tree is covered with ribbons. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we can be transfixed by human compassion and human forgiveness and human love. But listen to me, Jesus has gone far and beyond such love. The Laodiceans had wandered far from God. They were selfish and hard-hearted. They brought shame on the family name. And they weren't coming back. They weren't asking for forgiveness. They're not, hey, I'm going to ride a bus by the old house to see if forgiveness is granted. That's not what they were doing. 
Instead, Jesus says, I am taking a bus to your town. I'm going to get off. No one's going to be there to welcome me. There's going to be no ribbon in the tree waiting for me. I'm going to get out in the cold, dark night, and I'm going to knock on your door, eager to eat with you and to be with you. And my friends, if there is anything that I want you to remember from this series in Revelation is that the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers is him knocking and knocking and knocking and refusing to give up on his people when they run far away from him. I mean, think about this series. Think about the the vast variety of dumb and sinful things all these churches have done, all the various kinds of sins they've committed. And what we learn is Jesus wants us back. He wants them back. Say, I want to come in, I want to eat with you, I want to make my home with you. He's ridden the bus to our neighborhood. He's ridden the bus to Ottawa. (laughs) And he stands before us as a church and he knocks and he inquires, anyone, does anyone want to eat? I'll eat with anyone. He will not take you on any terms, only on his own. He says, so be zealous and repent. Return to a good Savior who loves you. I pray that God would give you ears to hear what he is saying to his church.